Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Well, we're continuing our series that we started last week called You Ask For It. This is a series that we've done almost every year as a church, uh, usually in the summertime where uh, you submit questions uh, a few weeks out about any topic you want. It can be faith-related, Bible-related. It can be about the culture. It can be about a news headline or whatever, anything you want. And the, and the idea is that we see what the Bible says about that topic or how the Bible would answer that question. And uh, today we're going to look at two questions that there are a lot of uh, questions or topics, I guess, that have a lot of questions surrounding them. Um, whether you're a Christian or not, these two topics are pretty popular uh, issues or questions that people have regarding faith and really life. So I'll just tell you both what we're going to look at, and then we'll look at them one by one. So we're gonna, today we're going to talk about tongues and the end times. We're going there today, all right? Uh, again, these, these questions don't go together, but the theme of them, these are like two big things, a lot of questions about them, a lot of unknowns about them, and so we're going to tackle these two topics that were submitted and see what this Bible says about tongues in the end times. So let's get right into it. And I'll just say this. Today is going to be a, a bit unique. It's going to be a lot of scripture, and I'm going to give a little commentary here and there, but it's basically going to be here's part of answering the question straight from the Bible, maybe give a short explanation, and then the next part of the answer from scripture on and on and on. So if you like reading the Bible, today's your lucky day because we're going to read quite a bit. And uh, we'll be in a couple of main chapters in one in the, or both in the New Testament uh, today. So let's get into it. The first question is, uh, has sort of a several that we're going to look at. We're going to tackle these. The main question is, though, can you explain speaking in tongues? Well, yes, I can. Uh, some other questions under that are, <clears throat> is it a special language between us and God? Is it speaking in different languages? Is it just babbling? Those are kind of the main questions that were asked under this heading. So there are, again, as you can see, lots of questions involved in this one topic, speaking in tongues. Uh, so what I want to do quickly is set this baseline about this issue before we get into answering the specific questions. I do want to make this clear that Paul, the New Testament writer and apostle, and therefore scripture, does affirm speaking in tongues as a legitimate spiritual gift. So it's not that this thing that somebody made up a couple hundred years ago or a doctrine that we just pulled out of thin air or like where did that come from? It's all over the New Testament. And Paul talks about it at great length both in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and chapter 14. So we're going to look at quite a bit of those uh, two chapters, mainly chapter 14 uh, here this morning. So first we'll look at chapter 12 because this is where he clearly affirms this as a, as a legitimate spiritual gift and it's included in a list of other spiritual gifts. Now, there are multiple lists of different kinds or types of spiritual gifts. Uh, this is one we, may, we might call them the verbal gifts. 
And so he, in the, we're going to kind of come in the middle of the list where he affirms and lists this one in that same list. So 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verses 10 and 11, Paul writes, he's in the middle of a list here. He says, to another person, they're given miraculous powers or the power to do miracles. And to another, the gift of prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits or discerning of spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. That's important how it's phrased there. And still to another, the interpretation of tongues, which will come in handy here in just a second. Verse 11, all these are the work of one and the same spirit. And he, the Holy Spirit, distributes them to each one just as he determines. So again, we're talking about this topic of tongues or speaking in tongues. It is important. Scripture clearly affirms it is an actual legitimate spiritual gift. It's in this list of other gifts. And for some reason, probably because it's the weird one, uh, it's the one that people kind of stiff arm. The other, like the other one, like, so working of miracles, you, you can wrap your head around that. But speaking in tongues, you can't. All right, fine, you know, I just, I think those are equally supernatural. They're equally odd to the natural, right? But somehow the working of he, healing, you know, oh yeah, they have the gift of healing. They have the gift of tongues. Oh, that's weird. It's like, no, they're both equally weird in a good way, all right? And I will say this quickly, this, this also is pulled out of these gifts, or s- some people, they're called cessationists. Maybe you've heard of this view of cessationism. So this is a view in certain Christian circles where they would say these spiritual gifts were, were fine for the original apostles, but after them, they ceased. That's why they're called cessationists, okay? So, again, really smart people believe that, right? Really uh, Christian people believe that, but there's no verse in scripture that says that in fact there's more evidence to the contrary that they are still in effect for today than that they're not Um, so this idea of these gifts cease it's not directly in scripture it's not indirectly in scripture you can't even take this verse and say well he's no in fact in first corinthians 14 39 paul says do not forbid speaking in tongues i don't know how you can get around it ceased after paul he says don't forbid it And my question for cessationists is, why does Paul give so much specific instruction on that gift in 1 Corinthians 14 if he knows within 30 years of my death, this isn't effective anymore? It's not for the second century church and beyond anymore. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. So this gift, although it is odd and strange in some ways, it is still, it is a legitimate spiritual gift and it is still in effect for today. So let's get into the specific question that's asked here, or the questions underneath the main one. So, is speaking in tongues the ability to speak real earthly languages? There seems to be some indication that that is the case. And actually, the first time that anyone ever speaks in tongues, that's the case. So Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, this is the very first time, right after Jesus ascends, he he tells his disciples, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes until you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, until you receive power to be witnesses for me. And so they're waiting in Acts 2 verse 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, so this is a regular Jewish festival, a feast. So as you'll see here in a second, all kinds of Jews from all over the region are in the capital city of Jerusalem for this Jewish festival of Pentecost, okay? So when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. 
They saw what appeared to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Verse 5, Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? So it does appear that this gift of tongues, the supernatural spiritual gift of speaking in tongues, can be and is at times at least this ability for the person who's received and is used in this gift to speak in an actual human language that they do not know. So when they speak it, they don't know what language it is or what they're saying. And we'll talk about the other part, the other gift that couples with that here in just a second. But so this idea of an unknown tongue, uh, we'll talk about specifically what that means here in a second. Let me give you a real life uh, example of this. So I heard this story in in college. Uh, One of the leaders of the Assemblies of God, which is the network to which we belong, he told this story. One time he was ministering in Africa where they did not speak English. Okay, So he had an interpreter with him this whole time. They're doing a, a large crusade. So after one of their meetings, they're eating a meal. And one of these girls who's helping to serve the meal, he said she was probably a preteen, like maybe 11 or 12. She comes in uh, to the room where all of the ministers and all the people are eating their lunch. And she comes in and she starts talking to them, saying how she praises God that they came uh, to minister. And she thanks God for the work that he's doing. And she's just so excited about the work that God, that the Holy Spirit's doing. And then she leaves the room. And Everybody's like, that's an amazing report. Praise God for that. And then, but the leader of that local church said, hey, this girl doesn't know English. So the Holy Spirit used this African girl, 12-year-old girl who never spoke English to speak in English to English speakers to encourage them in what God was doing through them. She was used in the gift of tongues. Now, she didn't know English. She'd never, I mean, she had heard this one white dude this week talking it. She didn't learn, the, she didn't get a download of the language all of a sudden and say this to them. The Holy Spirit used her in this gift, and it was a real earthly language. However, most of the time, if not all of the time, that maybe you've had an experience with this gift of tongues or speaking in tongues, you may either have not known if it was an actual language or not, probably didn't know, probably there's no way to know, and or uh, it may not have been so is that appropriate is that biblical so the next question then is is our tongues i guess a plural so i should say our our tongues or can tongues be a special spiritual type of language now we've already know from scripture and from other i know it's anecdotal but from experience real life experience that tongues sometimes are and can be actual human language that we don't know but can it be or is it sometimes a spiritual language? It doesn't exist on earth. It's for two, between us and God. The answer to that question is also yes. So 1 Corinthians 14 now, where Paul gets into a lot of nuts and bolts on this spiritual gift. He starts out chapter 14 this way, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Here's why. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to whom? To God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. Skip down to verse 14, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 14. 
Paul writes, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit or in the spirit, but I will also pray with or in my understanding. I will sing with or in my spirit, but I will also sing with or in my understanding. Otherwise, Paul writes, when you are praising whom? Praising God in the spirit. How can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you are saying? You are giving thanks to God. Yeah, you're giving thanks to God well enough, but no one else is edified. So while there are occurrences where tongues is an actual earthly man-made language that can be interpreted by someone who knows that language, Paul also does seem to give the possibility and the allowance that it also can be a unique spiritual language between us and God. There's both of these possibilities are on the table equally. And because again, in 1 Corinthians 14 here, he says we're praying in the spirit to God, praising God, thanking God, even though we don't understand what we are saying. So to both of these answers, is it an earthly language? Yes. Is it or can it be a spiritual language? Yes. Okay. So here's, here's where I want to end this question. What's the distinction? How do we know which it is? Does it matter which it is? What do we do with this, we have two options on the table? So the question is framed with a distinction between earthly language and spiritual language. However, the reason that this question is so murky to work through is because the scriptural distinction with tongues is not, is it an earthly language or a heavenly language? The distinction in scripture is, are these tongues spoken in private or in public? That's the main scriptural distinction that Paul and the other writers of the New Testament make. Not what kind of language it is or where it's from, but is it in public or in private? Because there are different rules regarding in which place or in which setting tongues are spoken, no matter what language it is. So we know, let's look at public tongues. I'm going to say public tongues, okay? Let's look at tongues in a public setting first, because we do know. We'll read this verse, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 5. Any tongue spoken in a public setting, like in a church service, must be interpreted to be in order. Okay? 1 Corinthians 14, verse 5. Paul says, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. See there again, cessationism. Paul doesn't say that. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. And here's why. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Skip down to verse 13 of the same chapter. He says, For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue, the one who speaks in the tongue, should pray that they may interpret what they say. And then skip down further to verses 18 and 19. Paul says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church, so that's private, okay, in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So again, public tongues, here's what we're going to look at. How do we know if a tongue is an actual language or not in a public setting? Well, we don't. Now, there's, I'll, I'll tell a story in a second that kind of, in a rare occasion, or in certain occasions, like the one, even the story I just told, it's confirmed that this was an actual language. They, it was English. These, these dudes knew what she was saying, even though she did not, okay? So, 
Uh, how do we know if it's an actual language? We don't. So it may be in a public setting that God will give this ability for this person through the Spirit to speak in a language that is from the earth, but they do not know. And then in a public setting, God, the Holy Spirit will either give that person, hopefully, Paul says, or if not them, someone else present, the interpretation of that language, even though they don't know the language. Okay, God can work in both sides of this, uh, both of these spiritual gifts, both the ability to speak in tongues and the ability to interpret them. However, it would also then, if we have two options on um, human language and non-human language, it would also then be, although maybe even weirder, equally plausible that God can also use someone to publicly speak in an unknown tongue that no one's ever heard of and also give them the interpretation of that or someone else present who doesn't obviously know that language to also have the interpretation. Does that sound messy enough to everybody else besides me? Yeah, it's messy. It's weird. We'll talk about why that's important in just a second. Uh, I want to give a story about how this happens, though. So uh, a pastor friend of mine, he's a bit older than me, but when he was in college, he told me this story. He was not in, not in the college, but at the church he attended in the same town. So what happened was in the church service, someone spoke out in the gift of tongues to the congregation in the church service. And then they, there was kind of, they kind of waited to see what the interpretation is going to be. Like, they know that's the next thing that's going to happen. So someone else, I it was someone else, I believe, gave the interpretation. But while they're giving the interpretation, some other person gets up from their seat and walks up to the front of the platform and just stands there while the person's interpreting the tongue. And the pastor sees this. He's up here, and he is unsure what to do. So after the interpreter's finished, he walks up to this other person and says, hi, can I help you? And the man said, the first person that spoke was speaking in a very rare dialect from the country where I'm from. He said, there's only a couple thousand people in this island nation over in, over in Asia where I'm from. He spoke, and what he said was, if you want to learn how to be saved, come forward. So I'm coming forward to learn how to be saved. So that's cool. Here's where it gets complicated, though. The person interpreting that message did not say that. That's not how they interpreted the tongue. So the man who knew the language that was an earthly language followed the instruction and came forward to learn how to be saved. But the person, feeling they were led by the Holy Spirit to give an interpretation, did not give that interpretation. Now, it wasn't a wrong, it wasn't, well, it was a wrong interpretation, obviously. But that's the complicated part. They gave an encouraging message. It, wasn't, it, wasn't, it didn't seem weird or odd except for this one person who knew what the first person was saying. So here's where it gets complicated. Was the interpreter wrong? I mean, in a technical sense, they were, I guess, but they didn't have malicious intent in their heart when they were interpreting, right? They sensed through their own limited knowledge and understanding of what was going on, they sensed this in their spirit that the Holy Spirit's giving me this interpretation for the church, for the body, to edify the body, because that's what Paul says. As we'll get to in a second, private tongues or personal tongues edify ourselves. Public tongues in a public setting edify the body. That's why you need the interpretation. He says, he says, if everybody speaks in tongues in a church service and no one interprets, someone that comes in, first of all, that has no idea what's going on, they're going to be scared out the door, rightly so, and the church isn't edified by that because no one knows what anyone's saying. So that's why the interpretation is important. So here, here's the thing. A, a perfect supernatural God gives spiritual gifts to imperfect natural people, and we have to just learn to work within that tension. 
We have to learn to work within that framework. A perfect supernatural God is giving spiritual gifts to imperfect natural people. So sometimes it's messy. And sometimes things happen that you're like, oh, was that right? Was that wrong? I don't know. It doesn't seem overtly evil what they did or said, even though it was technically incorrect. And so we just have to learn to live with that. We can't understand everything with any spiritual gift at all. How, do, how does someone explain that they were using the gift of healing? Well, they have the results to prove it, but how, I just had electric shocks come out of my fingers. Like, no one knows how even that gift works. How does the interpreter know if it's a certain language or if it's right? We don't quite always know. So what, I, what that ten, tends to do, though, with a lot of people is it scares us off from spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit then freaks us out because we can't understand him. Well, you also can't understand God the Father completely either, but you worship him with your whole heart, right? It's the same thing. The third person of the Trinity, although he seems even more odd than the first or second, is just, he's the same. He's full of love, he's full of grace, he's full of power, and we can tap into that through these spiritual gifts. So that's public, that's public gifts. Let me just quickly say with private tongues, though, there's no such requirement listed for an interpretation. So then what, why that's important, I believe, is it doesn't matter as much if in your private prayer time you're speaking in tongues, praying in tongues, Paul says speak, singing in tongues. It doesn't matter if it's a real language or not because you're not going to know what you're saying anyway. And no interpretation is required. He says we're edifying ourselves when we pray or sing or speak to God in this language, whether it's an actual earthly language or a heavenly spiritual language, all right? So because there's no requirement, this personal tongue thing, it might sound odd to somebody else if they hear you doing it. Uh, It might seem odd to you if you're doing it. But again, it's for our spiritual edification, our our spiritual building, and for this communication between us and God. Because even if it's a language that we don't know, God knows what we're saying, right? God doesn't need language. He's above and beyond all of those constructs. So however weird it seems to us, uh, it's okay because God gets it. So don't let this, you know, scare you off or run you off because these gifts build us up and build the church up. One final point I'll make about this and move to the second question is the purpose of spiritual gifts, right? Purpose of spiritual gifts, any of them, tongues included, is not just so we can say, oh, I'm using these gifts. Oh, I have this gift. Oh, I'm working on, you know, I've got three of them. I've got six more to go. You know, that's not the point. Jesus says at the beginning, before a spiritual gift is ever given, in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he says, wait in Jerusalem to be filled with power to be my witnesses from the Holy Spirit. That's the point of all of these things. Whatever the gift is, whatever the the spiritual thing is that God uses you in or gifts you with, it's all about power. Power to propel you forward in your life and power to propel you forward on your mission to spread the gospel. So I just want to, I always want to make that very clear. It's not so we can show off and it's not so we can say, oh, I'm Pentecostal or oh, I'm spirit-filled or oh, I speak in tongues, right? That's not what that's all about. It's about the power to be a witness for Christ. That's the point of any spiritual gift, including tongues. And that's just a real quick overview of tongues. We could do a whole class on that, maybe. Maybe we will, who knows? But not today. So we have one more question to get to, okay? So the second question is the other topic that gets asked even by more people than the first one. And that question is, it was phrased this way. So here's, how, here's the second question. Are the things happening right now, and they listed specifically rioting and the virus, are these things and others signs that we are in the end times? 
people always want to know about the end times. Are we in them? When are they? What's it going to look like? All that sort of thing. Again, I'm not going to cover every detail of this because I don't have five hours to do a seminar, uh, but I, I will just say this question especially gets asked the crazier the world is in, the condition the world is in. And I think it's safe to say the world's in a pretty crazy condition right now. So this, that's why this question is being asked. I mean, you look around the world, you read headlines, you watch the news. We're in the middle of a viral pandemic. Uh, in the West, we're in a cultural decline. Uh, all over the world, we're in political upheaval. And we're in the midst of global uncertainty. So that's where we are, like right now. If you put a pin on today's date, all those things, the boxes are checked. So Jesus actually talks about this, believe it or not. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 24 for most of the second question. So Matthew 24, Jesus talks about this topic because he knows people are going to want to know. They're going to want to know when's the end coming. So he's going to tell us a little bit about that. Matthew 24, we'll start at verse number 6 of Matthew 24. These are Jesus' words. He says, and you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. That's good advice right off the bat. Don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. That's important. We'll come back to that. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world. But all this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. Then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You'll be hated all over the world because you are my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it, and then the end will come. So what Jesus is doing here is what a lot of biblical prophets tend to do. He is giving a prophecy, but there's layers to it. Okay? Isaiah does this all the time. A lot of prophets do this a lot. So that can mean one of two different things, a layered prophecy. So either in a prophecy that's given, part is fulfilled quickly and the rest is fulfilled way later. Or the prophecy is fulfilled in one way quicker and in a different or secondary way or, in a, or a second time way later. So a very famous one from Isaiah that I'll mention quickly is really one of his prophecies about Jesus being born. A virgin will conceive and give birth. So technically the Hebrew for virgin there just means young woman. So there a lot of scholars agree that this prophecy from Isaiah is a layered prophecy. It's pointing to a future king, possibly Cyrus, who was born soon after Isaiah died. Okay? And all, not all of the spiritual aspects follow, but a lot of the physical ones do. But then we know that several hundred years later, Jesus ultimately fulfills that prophecy. So a lot of prophecies work that way. Some of it is done early than some late, or it's fulfilled in one way soon and another way later. That's what Jesus is also doing here. Because the first layer of this prophecy, he's predicting things that happen about 40 years after he, he's gone. So in 70 AD, about 40 years after Jesus says these words, a lot of these events happen in one form. 
Because in 70 AD, the Roman Empire destroys Jerusalem and destroys the temple. He talks about that later on in this chapter in sort of a shadowy type of way. And then in the first couple centuries, his followers are persecuted like he predicts. So what he's saying here has already happened to some degree. Because his followers are persecuted both sometimes by the Roman government, sometimes by the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders. Like Paul was a great example of this. He started out as a high-ranking, high-respected Jewish official who persecuted Christians. So he is fulfilling part of this prophecy in a way for a while in Matthew 24 until Jesus turns his life around and he does the opposite. So that's the first layer that's fulfilled quickly. The second layer is the one that we are still waiting on, the one that we are most concerned about. So let's skip forward down to verse 36, Matthew 24, 36, and let's look at sort of the second layer of this question about the end times. Jesus goes on to say, verse 20, 36, However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. It's interesting to consider that. When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. Jesus says, that is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. So you too must keep watch, for you don't know what, what day your Lord is coming. Understand this. If a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. When least expected. I want to focus on that phrase that Jesus gives at the end of this, uh, th- this conversation here and kind of point it to what he said at the beginning. Some of these signs that we look at, he says, it's just the beginning. It's going to get worse. It's going to keep going. These things happen in cycles over time. Countries go to war all the time and have since the beginning of time. Since before Jesus said this, countries obviously went to war. All these earthquakes and famines happen way before Jesus ever said these words. So it's not anything new that we're just now seeing. Oh, an earthquake in Haiti. That never happened before. That happens everywhere all the time. Oh, famines in Africa. That, never, that happens all the time. Oh, these wars and rumors. It happens all the time. So it's hard to really understand. That's why Jesus says, no one knows. But he said, I'm going to come when least expected. Let me focus on that in two ways really quickly. So first, it's obvious. He said he's going to come without warning. So he says, be ready. And the the key thing, I think that's going to be the most amazing event that we will ever be a part of if we're here to witness the return of Christ, okay? However, he's not coming for everyone, right? He says, I'm coming for those who are ready, who are waiting, who have put their faith in me. That's who he's coming for. Everybody else, he says, one will be taken, the other left. So that's what it's going to look like whenever Christ comes. Those that are ready for him and waiting for him, he will come to get them, his bride, uh, but everyone else will be left, and then it's going to be like really, really bad, okay? So like all the revelation stuff that we worry about, I don't really worry about it because I don't plan to be here for a lot of that stuff, okay? I believe the next event to happen is Christ will return, and then the destruction time will then start ticking, okay? Again, that's a different sermon for a different day. Um, So that's the first part of this morning. But let me give the second idea about when least expected. Now, I'm not making a prediction here, because 
Jesus says no one knows. But let me give you one possible way to maybe think about this discourse here from Jesus on when he will return, when the end times will begin. Jesus says when least expected. So it's possible, I I could read this, Jesus is saying, I'm probably not going to come when you're asking this question. Okay? When there's turmoil and fear and uncertainty and all this tragedy worldwide, I'm not saying he's not going to come then, but he's even hinting at it may not be then because you're expecting it. You're asking the question. So it's possible Jesus could be saying, I'm probably going to come when things are hunky-dory. Like when there's peace in a lot of parts of the world, when prosperity is everywhere, when there's some certainty about life and the future, that's probably when we should be looking for his return. Now just Again, I'm not making a prediction, but let me give you an example of how that might look. It would have made perfect sense for Jesus to come back in the 1950s, right? The world has just come through two world wars, okay? We've just come through that, and especially America, most of the West, we're rebuilding, we're recharging, we're having babies, we're making families, life is great, there's peace, every, it, things pr- pretty good. That would have been like the perfect time no one would have expected for Jesus to return. It wouldn't have made sense for him to come, you know, in the middle of all this because we would be looking for him. Looking, he says, I'm coming when you least expect it. So let me just give you, and I'll explain what I mean in, in a second, but maybe when we're not asking this question, is when we might be looking for this to happen. Just, just a suggestion. But we don't know when Jesus will come, but we know that he will, and we know that it will be soon. Now, you can say that's a relative term, but Jesus says he's coming soon. So let's get to Revelation, the very end of the Bible here, Revelation 22, uh, a few verses here starting at verse number 7. Jesus says, Look, I am coming soon. Blessed are those who obey the words of prophecy written in this book. Skip down to verse, uh, verse number 12. Jesus says again, Look, I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all the people according to their deeds. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Skip down to verse 17. The Spirit, so this is now John giving his thought here. The Spirit and the bride, who's the bride? the church, we are, he's saying, the spirit and the bride say to Jesus, come. Let anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who desires drink, who desires drink freely from the water of life. And then skip down to verse 20 and 21, the last two verses of the Bible. He who is the faithful witness to all these things, that's Jesus, says, yes, I am coming soon. The last verse of the Bible, amen, come Lord Jesus, may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's holy people. How many of you like a good cliffhanger on a TV show or a book? This is the greatest cliffhanger of all time. You have the main character of the entire book saying, I'm coming back soon, the end. There's no third part. There's nothing after this. That's how the book ends. I'm coming soon. And John's like, come on. That's how the book ends. I'm coming soon, dot, dot, dot. So the next major spiritual event in the world is the coming of Christ, the second coming. He came once as a baby in a manger. He's coming back with a sword in his hand, fire in his eyes. He's not messing around, okay? So we don't know when Christ will come back, but we do know it is soon. So it makes me think that this word imminent, That is how 
the followers and disciples of Jesus thought about his return. It's imminent. They expected, as you read their writings, they expect their friend to come back in their lifetime. He's just gone away for a while. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Like, I'm going to get my Airbnb all, all zhuzhed. Is that the right word? All zhuzhed up. I used that word wrong this morning. Getting ready, and it just hit me. I want to say it right. He's getting everything ready at the Airbnb, and then I'm going to come back, and I'll let you in. That's what they're thinking. It's imminent. He's, our friend Jesus is going to come back in our lifetime. It was, it was no doubt to them. Now, we know it's been 2,000 years that he's been gone, and that seems like a long time to us. But again, to God, who's the only one that knows when he will send his son back, that's nothing. Time is nothing to him. So we don't know when he will come back, but we still should expect it. We still should have this hope of imminence. It could happen at any moment. So the question is, what do we do about that in the meantime? What's our responsibility as his followers awaiting his return? Again, back to Matthew 24, Jesus answers that question too. In verses 45 through 47, as we begin to close, he says this, A faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other house servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. So Christ has not returned yet, but he promises to, and he promises to do it soon. His return is imminent. So while we wait for Christ's return, do we store up food and ammo in our bunker? Do we live in constant fear of what's going on around us? Do we just read our Bible and watch the sky? Do we live as if maybe he's not going to come after all? I mean, he's not come yet. He's certainly not going to come in my lifetime. Do we live that way? No, Jesus says, stay busy until I come. No matter how long that is. You've got work to do as my followers, my messengers. Stay busy doing the work until I come. Remain faithful. Be found faithful when I return. His advice is, his encouragement is, stay on mission. Don't be worried about when I'm going to come or how I'm going to come. or what's. Just do your thing that I've commissioned you to do with your life. Use your influence for the sake of the gospel. Make a difference in your community, in your city, around the people that you love. And when I come, I'll come. But until then, stay busy. So here's what that means. One more thought as we close. If you believe in imminency, then you should live with urgency. If you believe in imminency, then you should live with urgency. We should believe Jesus now more than ever. We should follow him now more than ever. We should share him now more than ever. His return could be today. That'd be awesome. But if it's not, we got work to do. There are people who are not ready for his return that we can help get them there. We can work. Now, the results aren't up to us, but we have work to do to plant seeds in the hearts and lives of those around us to get them ready for that return. So every day that Christ hasn't returned is another opportunity for us to keep working, to keep laboring, to stay busy, sharing love, hope, and life. See, I wore it on purpose today. That's the point. Keep doing that. Keep following, loving, serving, and sharing Jesus. Every day that he hasn't come back is another day that we have a chance to make a difference, to meet needs of people around us, to point them to the one that can do anything that needs to be done, that can fix any ill that they have, that can solve any problem that they face, that can answer any question that they have. That's what we're supposed to do. And as we do that, we say, yes, come Lord Jesus. 
We want to see how that story ends for ourselves. We want to see that moment where he comes. But until then, we're going to stay busy doing the work that he's called us to do.